And let's open that Savior's word now together. I'm going to read first from Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Daniel chapter 9, and then to Mark 13. Daniel chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 20, read through the end of the chapter. Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin... And the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy." Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Then to Mark Chapter 13, carry on our study of the the Olivet Discourse. We're going to read what the bulletin says, 14 through 31, and my intention was to preach 14 through 21, but that's not going to happen. We'll we'll have to cut that passage in half and uh, carry on next time. So we'll begin in verse 14, read through 31. Get the context, though. Last week we looked at the signs of the times. These are the signs. You had earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and famine, but the end was not yet. Remember the disciples' question, when are these things going to happen? When is the destruction of the temple going to happen? Now we get to the sign. Verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation... Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. 
and pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, here he is, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send his angels to gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please be seated. In Mark chapter 12, our Lord tells us uh, the, the parable of the wicked vine dressers. A parable which he tells the wicked leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees, exactly what will happen to them. The owner of the vineyard, having sent servant after servant, prophets, the apostles, the preachers, servant after servant to the vine dressers whom he had hired, and then having murdered them, He sent his only son, therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ is prophesying in the Olivet Discourse. The end of the vine dressers. Here in the Olivet Discourse, he details that destruction as he answers the questions of his disciples concerning his disturbing statement that not one stone of this temple, not one, would be left upon another. And they want to know when these things are going to happen. They want to know what the signs of these things will be. That, that, that it's about to happen. They want to know when and what. In Matthew's fuller account, they include the question about uh, when, uh, what's the sign of the end of the age? And it's not actually a third question, but it's connected to the questions about the signs. The disciples think they're asking two questions about one event. Jesus is showing them, uh, and it's clear in the text, we'll, we'll flesh it out more next week, Uh, the transition between verses 30 and and verses 32, he's showing them uh, that that their thinking is wrong and much of 21st century, 20th and 21st century Western thinking is wrong on this passage, uh, uh, and that they're actually asking two questions about two related but different events. 
Our Lord's teaching them and us not to confuse the two events, the destruction of the temple and the second coming. They're not the same event. And you see, in the disciples' minds, the destruction of the temple can mean only one thing, the end of the world. There's nothing more cataclysmic, more apocalyptic, more ultimate than the taking away of the temple. The temple was everything, absolutely everything. All their hopes lie in the temple. The disciples' desire is to know when Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. And our Lord Jesus Christ began answering that question in verses 3 through 13 with the preliminary signs to which he said, These are but the beginnings of sorrows. Such things as false Christ and wars of rumors of wars and earthquakes and famine and pestilence, these things must happen, he says, but the end is not yet. These were preliminary signs, general signs. But now as we come to verses uh, 24 and following, or rather 14 and following, we come to the section that gives the sign that the end of Jerusalem has come. That the Lord Jesus Christ is meeting this Old Covenant people in judgment. That the end of Old Covenant religion has come. There are undoubtedly things that are familiar to American Christianity here in this passage, but widely misunderstood. Things such as the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation. Uh, There's a, what a, a... 36-volume, that's an exaggeration, a 36-volume novel series based on this. Abomination of desolation, great tribulation. Again, what is the key to understanding this passage? What verse? We've said it for three weeks. Verse 30. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place place. We need to remember as we look at this prophecy that it's not relayed by our Lord Jesus Christ for armchair theologians to speculate about what will happen in millennia to come. It's not esoteric information about the future. But our Lord Jesus Christ's response to his disciples was first and foremost deeply pastoral. It was a ministry of comfort to them. Mark 13, while it is a prophecy of judgment against the wicked, and while it does foreshadow the greater judgment to come, and we'll see next week, he he even prophesies the second coming. It's first and foremost the good shepherd caring for his soon-to-be scattered sheep. It's not a prophetic puzzle nor information for the enlightened few, but it's to promote faith and obedience and perseverance in times of distress and upheaval. And that, beloved, is the application for us. Because we will face times of distress. Some of us will face times of persecution and upheaval. And so we're going to look at the judgments of Christ in history this morning, uh, particularly this one judgment of Christ in history, the judgment on Old Covenant Israel. And then we're going to look at lessons that we can learn from them, four lessons to learn from this judgment. So what is the sign then? That the time was at hand for the destruction of the temple, for Old Covenant worship, for the rest of the catastrophe. For the worst catastrophe imaginable to befall Old Covenant Israel. Verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not. 
It's this, Jesus says, that should cause the disciples of Christ to flee for the mountains when the abomination of desolation stands where he ought not to stand. They should flee. And so what is he talking about? What is the abomination of desolation? Well, what's the key to understanding interpreting Scripture? What's the infallible rule of interpretation? Scripture interprets Scripture. The newspaper and current events do not interpret Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so to understand the phrase, abomination of desolation, we need to keep in mind those two things. One is context, that Jesus is speaking to whom in the first place? His first century Jewish disciples, not to 21st century Americans. And then secondly, again, Scripture interprets Scripture. Newspapers do not interpret Scripture. In the Old Testament, an abomination typically referred to the profaning of the worship of God. Didn't refer to politics. Didn't refer to some savvy secular leader here, there, or yonder that was going to take over the world. It referred to the profaning of the worship of God, the desecration of right worship, an act of gross sacrilege against the Lord. The phrase is used by the prophet Daniel a number of times in that book, uh, and the word as used there is, has a very clear connection with idolatry and the desecration of right worship. We read one of those passages in our scripture reading, uh, and you remember Last week, we said that one of the principal marks of biblical prophecy is the viewing of two events as if they were one. Uh, We described it as the prophet, he's standing at a distance. He's viewing the future as a distant mountain range, Uh, and, and there's one peak rising behind another, but from a distance, it all looks as one. And as he gets closer to the mountain range, to to the first peak, he can see how great a distance there is between that first peak and the second peak. And so when you're reading Bible prophecy, you need to be aware that there may be layers or mountain peaks that appear from a distance to be one, uh, but upon closer inspection are two or three. And this is how we should read Daniel 9 and 7 and 12 and, and 11. It's how we should read Daniel 9. The immediate fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy happened in 168 B.C. Antiochus Epiphanes stood where he should not have stood. He set up a pagan altar, raised up images to be worshipped, and he sacrificed a pig on that pagan altar in the most holy place, a bold but foolish declaration that the superiority of, of the superiority of his gods over the true God is in Israel, that he had superiority over Israel and over the living God. And this, this act of sacrilege resulted in the Maccabean revolt, but there's another layer, another mountain peak that, that we see when we get to that one. And Luke helps us to understand what this is, the abomination of desolation spoken of by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you remember, Luke, he's a Gentile, and his audience is much broader than Mark's audience. Mark is writing to to, to first century saints in Rome who are being persecuted. Luke is writing to a much broader audience as as a historian and as a Gentile. 
And so he's not going to expect Gentile readers to understand this Jewish language, abomination of desolation. They wouldn't make the connection necessarily to Daniel and other passages. This is foreign language to them. So rather than saying abomination of desolation, he interprets uh, the, 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 the passage for them. In, in chapter 21, verse 20, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. What is the abomination of desolation? It refers broadly to the whole pagan Roman army. The, they would come and they would stand where they ought not to in the holy city and in the holy temple desecrating it. Their standards would be brought into the temple, into the city. Their standards, they, they, they had uh, the eagle. We'll talk about that Maybe next week, too. Mark, uh, uh, Matthew, in his account of this, he makes mention of the eagle, right? Um, but also, on their standards, were the image of Caesar, who was, in the Roman mind, divine. They brought false gods, idols, where it wasn't to be. The Roman army carried them into the temple. In A.D. 70, when Titus destroyed it all, it punctuates the end of the Old Covenant era, God's holy judgments against the Jews for rejecting the Messiah. And the great signal for the destruction of Jerusalem was this abomination of desolation, the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem. This is the sign. You want to know when the temple is going to be destroyed? This is it. When you see those Roman troops lining up outside your walls... The disciples have asked for the sign. Here it is. When the disciples see the abomination of desolation, what should they do? Those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. Now, that's significant because that's not what you did in the first century. Invading army, you don't flee to the mountains. You flee to the fortified city. That's where safety is. Jesus is telling them no. You stay in Jerusalem to your own death. You flee to the mountains. The moment you see the first Roman soldier appear around Jerusalem's walls, you flee because it will not take long for Titus to seal the city off, and then there will be no getting out. He highlights the need for haste in verses 15 through 18. Let him who's on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. Housetops uh, were flat and, and often used as a sort of uh, patio. They were the, the front porch, if you will, the, the top porch. Um, it was a living space. You could, you could often walk across them from one house to the next, never having to go down into the house. Jesus says, if you're on the roof, rooftop and you see the abomination of desolation, don't even go down. Run across the roof and get out of the city. Flee atop the housetops. If you're in the field, don't flee back into the city to get anything. Don't get supplies. You don't have time for that. Run and pray that no natural impediment obstructs your flight, that it not occur in winter. That you not be with child during these dark days. And, and you can imagine the difficulty of being pregnant and fleeing an invading army into the wilderness. Or having little ones 
fleeing into the wilderness. These three examples highlight the great urgency in fleeing quickly. Once the city's encircled, once there are enough troops around, there's no escape. And we know from historical records that Christians did indeed heed the Lord's words. They fled at the first sight of the abomination of desolation, and they were spared the great tribulation that followed. Fourth century church, Eusebius wrote that, uh, that they did indeed flee and establish the church at Pella on the east side of the Jordan River, 40 or so miles from Jerusalem. While the Christians fled, heeding their Lord's words, the Jews surrounding Jerusalem fled into the city. They did the normal thing. They went into the fortified city. In verse 19, in those days there will be tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, how is this often viewed? Right? You've, you've got tribulation not been seen since the, the beginning of creation, nor ever shall be. Well, that can only mean the end of the world. That can only mean the second coming, right? Right? Again, what's our interpretive key here? Verse 30. This generation will see all of these things come to pass. Well, this is prior to verse 30, isn't it? Verse 19 has a first century fulfillment. Indeed, the Christians were to flee because of the great tribulation coming upon Jerusalem. And so we have over one million Jews now trapped within the walls of Jerusalem. And historical records tell us that the Jews inflicted as much or more terror upon themselves as the Romans did. Part of the Great Tribulation is certainly the Roman siege and atrocities committed against the Jews, but a significant part of the Great Tribulation are atrocities committed by the Jews upon their fellow Jews. They inflicted much suffering and horror upon one another. Factions arose, fighting for control in the city. You see uh, the the warning in verse 21 and verse 22 against false Christ. The, The Jewish expectation was that the Messiah would come and save them here and now. This is where it happens. We're surrounded. He's going to throw off the Roman yoke, usher in the Messianic kingdom. Jesus says, don't believe them. There will be no salvation for the Jews in that day. As the Roman army surrounds the city on the outside, there's a bloody civil war on the inside. Many sought to escape and and flee to the Romans from the bloodbath within. There was enough food within the city to withstand the siege for years. So why did it fall so quickly? Infighting. In the Civil War, much of that food store was set on fire by these warring factions. Well, we'll starve you out. No, we'll starve you out. And they starved everyone out. There's crime, hunger, such that some resort to cannibalism, stealing food and other goods, the stench of decaying corpses lie in the streets. Josephus records that those who did escape to the Romans were beaten and tortured and crucified outside of Jerusalem's walls. No safety within, no safety without. 
He writes that some swallowed their valuables to keep them from, the, from thieves uh, within the city. Romans got sight, caught, caught wind of that. And so what did they begin to do when Jews would escape to the Roman armies outside? They disemboweled them to get the treasures within. Josephus says that in one night there were 2,000 disemboweled outside the walls of Jerusalem. And finally, the Romans stormed the city and utterly destroyed everything. Josephus says they even plowed the ground to make the point. Utter destruction. Over one million dead. D.A. Carson says never, never has so high a percentage of a great city's population been so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. What's our Lord say? Such a great tribulation as has never been and will never be. All of that together, says Marcellus Kick, with the anguish of a people forsaken by God, makes the words of Christ none too strong for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. It was only the mercy of God that the death and destruction was limited to this, 1.1 million. Who knows how many more displaced, enslaved. For unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. It was for the elect's sake that he lifted his just, righteous, holy hand of judgment. If it had continued, war would have spread, and even the Christians who'd fled would have been caught up in it for the sake of his elect. He stopped it. Titus himself, the Roman general who would later become emperor, says, we have certainly had God for our assistance in this war. And it was no other than God who ejected the Jews out of these fortifications for what could the hands of men or any machines do towards overthrowing these towers? Perhaps Titus goes there just expecting to make a point and, and, and not really succeed in overthrowing Jerusalem. You remember Herod had worked on it for, for years now, just completed it at the time of its destruction. Uh, Its fortifications were mighty. It had world renown. Titus is saying, we can't can't tear this down. We can't overthrow this. But the righteous hand of Almighty God visiting the earth in judgment can. And he did. We could read pages and pages and pages of horrific descriptions from Josephus and from secular Roman historians on the atrocities that occurred in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So what lessons are we to learn from this judgment of Christ in history? There's four that I want to highlight. We've highlighted many already in the series, but four that I want to highlight this morning from this terrible judgment on sinners. And the first is this, is that we need to listen to what God says and not to what man says. That is broad application. We need to listen to what God says and not what man says. Verses 21 through 23. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, here he is there, do not believe him. 
For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. Uh, It's easy in times of great peril and distress and chaos to latch onto anything that has any ounce of hope to it. And that's to say it's easy to fall into religious fanaticism, and we've seen this in our day, haven't we? Uh, what was the, the, the guy's name? Uh, Jones. Jim Jones. It's an example. That was certainly the case in the first century during the Great Tribulation. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm, look, I'm telling you right now, I've told you everything beforehand. If anyone says the Christ is here or there, do not believe them. And in fact, in Matthew's account, he adds to this something that Mark doesn't include. He says, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. He's saying, when I return the second time, you won't have to go look here or there. You won't need word of mouth to know that I'm here. You're going to know it. Like the lightning flash in the sky, all mankind will see and they will know. And so we cling to the word of God, not to the word of man. There's application here for how we interpret scripture as well, for how we read a passage like the Olivet Discourse. Scripture interprets scripture. We come to questions about what this passage means. We, we, We come to difficult passages of scripture, and there are difficult passages of scripture that are not easy to understand. What do we turn to? We don't turn to the newspaper. We don't turn to current events. We turn to passages of Scripture that speak more clearly. Help us to understand the more difficult passages. We make sure that we understand the context of the said passage. Historically, culturally. When reading the New Testament, one of the things that this means is a familiarity with the Old Testament. All of this imagery in the Olivet Discourse in the book of Revelation, it comes from the Old Testament. And we will not understand it without a working knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. R.C. Sproul in his book, uh, Knowing Scripture at the End, uh, probably in one of the appendixes, it's been a while since I've read it, I, I, I don't remember. One of the final chapters are in the, the appendix. He says uh, that if you are unfamiliar with Scripture, if you're a new Christian or you're just unfamiliar with Scripture, a good practice is to master certain books first. Genesis, Exodus, right? the Gospels. Why? It's this principle that we just stated. It relates to the perspicuity of Scripture, that there are some passages that are more clear than others come to an intimate working knowledge of the clear passages and then you'll be able to rightly handle the difficult passages. And so that's the first lesson uh, that we, we learn here is to listen to what God says, not to what man says. Second, the fallen world that we live in is in conflict with the living God and the one whom he sent, this Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. Fallen man hates God. Satan hates God. Our sinful flesh would have us hate our God. 
And that means that when men, women, boys, and girls are saved by grace through faith in this Jesus Christ, they are put at odds with the flesh, with the world, and with Satan. And so the apostle says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial if something strange is happening to you. That shouldn't be surprising. And yet, what do we hear? Why is this happening to me? Conflict is the context of the believing life. It's the norm. It's the norm, not the exception. Do not be taken by surprise by the sufferings of God's people, nor by the catastrophes of history. None of that should be surprising. The disciples faced the famines. Verses 3 through 13, the disciples faced the famines. There were days when they were hungry. They felt the earthquakes. No doubt, there was rubble falling down around them at times. The pestilence, the persecutions, the signs leading up to the abomination of desolation, the context of the believing life is conflict. Third uh, is the use of means in the Christian life. Verse 14, so when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it ought not, then let those who are in Judea flee. Let them flee. Flee the judgment to come. Don't be passive martyrs, Jesus is saying. Take decisive action, knowing that I'm active in the world. It's not wrong to flee danger. In fact, Jesus is saying it's smart. Get out of Dodge. It's not wrong for those facing martyrdom to leave that place. To flee to another place. And in fact, that's how the gospel has spread so rapidly around the world. Persecuted Christians fleeing martyrdom, spreading the gospel as they went. Now certainly if the sword's held to your neck, you must take it rather than deny Christ. But it's not wrong to flee martyrdom. And in fact, the act of Christians leaving a place that would kill them is in itself judgment on that place, a removal of the only thing that keeps a place, right? Because Christians are what? Salt. Light. What is salt? It's a preservative. You're Sodom and Gomorrah, Lord, for 50, 40, 30, 20, for 10 righteous, would you spare the city? He would. Why? Because they're salt. You remove the salt, what happens? It rots away. It's a removal of the word of God from a place, and that is judgment. The beginnings of judgment. And so Jesus is telling his disciples here, you need to have some common sense in the Christian life. You don't invite suffering unnecessarily. That may be very pertinent in the future, in the West. Christians use means. One man applied it this way. He said, do you need food? You pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, and you work. You're sick. What do you do? You pray, Lord, heal me. And you use means, medicines, doctors, To just pray is presumption. 
not to mention sloth. To just work is self-righteousness. The lesson for us is that, yes, God guards his people, but he does so through their obedience to his commands. Finally, the fourth lesson is this. It is that God punishes sin every time. God punishes sin. He visits sinners. He visits houses. He visits societies, nations peoples with holy judgments. He deals with sin. He dealt with sin in ages past. He deals with sin in ages present. And he will deal with sin in the future once and for all in the great judgment to come. God's judgment came and he destroyed his own temple. These people that he had carried out of Exodus, out of, out of Egypt in the Exodus, back from Babylonian exile, thousands of years, he destroys them in a moment. God deals with sin. And in fact, it, it relates very much to what we'll, we'll look at this more next week, but... Um, Verses 24 and following. Uh, We'll we'll look at this in greater detail next week. This is another passage people look at, and they say this has to be the second coming. Again, it's, it's prior to verse 30. He says, but in those days, after that tribulation, after the tribulation just spoken about, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. This is very often the way that the Old Testament scriptures speak of God coming in judgment. And we'll look at this more next week, but our call to worship from Psalm 97. How how is God described there? Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Why this judgment on Jerusalem? Because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And beloved, not only should that fact that God deals with sin bring terror into the hearts of those who would rebel against him and not find refuge in this Christ, but it should bring us great comfort because our God does right. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. What happened in 70 AD? Righteousness and justice happened. And that is good. That is good. Because our God is good. So often, it's easy for us to think in such times that God's plan has failed. Tribulations come upon us. Whatever they might be. Certainly, if you you live in Ukraine right now, tribulations have come upon you. Or you get that diagnosis, or a loved one gets that diagnosis, or you get the phone call. Something terrible has happened. Tribulations come upon us. They come upon nations. They come upon churches. 
and we think God's plan has failed. It's all come to naught. But beloved, God's plan has not failed. God's plan did not fail in 70 AD when he destroyed that temple in Jerusalem. Jesus speaks here of the salvation of God's elect through all of these judgments and tribulations. Though the destruction of the Jerusalem, it would have certainly shaken these first century Jewish believers to their core. They could yet rejoice, as can we, that the kingdom, the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, cannot be shaken. In John 10, we're promised... What are we promised? Not one, not one will be taken from his holy, omnipotent hand. And that is a comfort to us when we see the church under persecution. Think China, Middle East, Africa. It's a comfort when the foundations of society and even of the church are being destroyed, when Christian institutions are falling under God's holy judgment because of infidelity, spiritual declension, idolatry. It's happening in our day. We can take comfort because the city of God, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, cannot be shaken. Not even the slightest tremor. Beloved, how do we walk away from a passage like this? We walk away with fear and trembling that this is our God who visits the earth in judgment. But we walk away with comfort and confidence that this is our God. The foundations of his throne are righteousness and justice. And we rest hidden in Christ. Not only this moment, this day, but unto all eternity. Secure in the beloved, the rock.